Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, it's um, another one of our special interview pods. I nearly forgot the word pod there, Kieran. It's, <laughs> that's in the excitement of us winning an award this week. Um, and how pleased I was to see the Baroness in a photograph holding up the trophy that's so rightfully mine, Kieran. <laughs> uh, it was a lovely photograph, by the way. I still have that. GQ magazine, PQ magazine. Oh, well, that's our first one, Kieran. It's the first when, when the when the film inevitably comes out about the Price of Football podcast, uh, and we can speculate as to who will play us in a future episode. But one of the major, one of the, I think the producers will say, let's let's forget those first awkward meetings in a pub in Soho when Guy had to be cajoled into going to the bar to buy a drink. Let's forget that bit. Let's go straight into the first award. That's what Hollywood wants. Um, This interview, Kieran, is with Charles Rose, who's the ex-chair of Chelsea Pitch Owners. He's still a shareholder in Chelsea Pitch Owners, um, which is a a group, I have to say, Kieran, um, I I had totally underestimated. I knew about Mm. them, but I had no idea of their history and their role, which is one of the reasons I found this interview particularly fascinating. Charles, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with Chelsea as a fan. Right. I, I first started watching football in the mid-1960s. Uh, my dad was a, was a dyed-in-the-wall rugby fan, which for anybody living in Bedford, as I as I do, is uh, a rugby town. So we started watching uh, Bedford Town, uh, the Eagles. Um, and to be honest, the Southern League was hardly what uh, uh-huh. we were exactly looking forward to. So he took me to Chelsea in 1968, and I've been a Chelsea fan ever since. Um, I've been involved in all sorts of different types of businesses. I ran a printing business. Um, I've been involved in uh, modular building of hospitals. I've been in uh, technology and uh, lastly in uh, merchandising as well. So I've had a varied career and uh, other things I've done include being a a director of the British Chambers of Commerce and also uh, representing um, the printing industry and various other bodies as well. Oddly enough, my my very first game, only a few years after that was uh, in the Southern League, I was taken to see Wimbledon. Um, we probably played Bedford as well. To, now I can't remember. Luckily, I was taken to Sellers Park the week afterwards. So any lingering doubts about who I was to support? <laughs> take, uh, although if I knew Bedford were called the Eagles, I might have ended up supporting them. Um, um, Charles, the history of Chelsea pitch owners is much more fascinating than I imagined. But before we get into that, can you tell us what exactly you own and how many of you there are that own it? Right. Um, if you look at Stamford Bridge as a whole site, uh, there are, in fact, six different freeholds um, that are involved in it, and five of them are owned by Chelsea or companies associated with them. Um, this information, by the way, may be a little bit out of date following the takeover. Yeah. But the other bit, and the important part, um, is the pitch and the stands. If you go to Stamford Bridge and you go outside the West Stand, you will notice that there is a change in the colour of the bricks on the ground, and that delineates where our boundary actually sits. So it is, in essence, the stadium itself. 
And the stadium is owned by a company called Chelsea Stadium Limited, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Chelsea Pitch Owners PLC. Uh, The reason for that is quite technical, that Chelsea Stadium Limited, for historical reasons, was registered in Scotland, um, which was something that Matthew Harding did. And uh, we've never actually tried to unravel that. So that's the actual ownership of it. And do you own the name of the club as well? Is that true? Right. So what happens then is that, um, and this is where this is where the complicated bit kicks in, because um, there is a lease. The lease is that we allow Chelsea Football Club to pay to play their games at Stamford Bridge, and in return for that, we get a peppercorn rent. They loaned us the amount of money. Uh, to buy the ground, um, which was some 11,151,000, according to their latest accounts. Um, And uh, in return for that, we sell shares to um, different shareholders. Um, The shareholders, uh, each share is worth £100 um, of capital money. And uh, you are allowed to hold as many shares as you like, but you are only allowed to vote with... um, a maximum of 100 of them, so £10,000 worth of shares. Um, In the lease itself, which is for 199 years, uh, we have an obligation to uh, repay that money, and the club are convinced that we will be able to do that within that sort of space of time. And uh, the kicker into that is that if Chelsea Football Club uh, do not play their first team games uh, at Stamford Bridge, and uh, if they don't do that with our permission, with the permission of Chelsea Pitch Owners, then the name Chelsea Football Club will revert back to Chelsea Pitch Owners. Right. I want to come back to that loan a little later because it's yeah. uh, it's a fascinating piece of business and I'd be interested to hear what Kieran thinks about it. But just if you can, because as I say, it really is much more complicated than I imagined yeah. when I first started researching this. I, I, I genuinely thought, I think like a lot of London football fans, you know, the Evening Standard will occasionally mention Chelsea pitch owners and you, you kind of get the impression that it's a sort of gentleman's club who all own a bit of the pitch with this strange agreements. If you could give us a potted history of how this came about uh, okay. and when, that would be really useful. In the 1980s, uh, Ken Bates took over Chelsea Football Club le- um, and the legend has it he paid a, a princely sum of one pound for the whole club because yeah. we were heavily indebted following the building of the East Stand, which still is there to this date. Um, Unfortunately, he was unable to buy Stamford Bridge at the same time. The previous owners, the Mears family, had sold it to a different uh, company, and uh, that company in turn was uh, Marla Estates, which was a property development company. Marla Estates thought that this uh, was being a prime piece of West London uh, land was uh, ripe for either residential or uh, other development. And so they sought to get Chelsea Football Club out. Um, Ken Bates fought a long and arduous battle. Uh, The fans uh, raised money through a campaign called Save the Bridge. Mm. Um, And I did, uh, you know, I did my bit. I ran a half marathon for them, uh, which my knees thanked me for for, forever and a day (laughs) until I got them them replaced. uh, and uh, and 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 eventually, um, after it had been sold to another property development company called Cabra, uh, who went broke, the uh, property came back to Chelsea Football Club. And uh, Ken was feeling, and he says this, and he said this many times, he was feeling rather uh, pleased with himself until 
um, one particular time he was walking around the pitch and somebody shouted to him, well, it's all very well, Ken, but what happens when your grandson does exactly the same um, in, in years to come? And Ken got a bit angry at this, but then he suddenly thought, you know what, he's right. And after looking at it, he then set up Chelsea pitch owners in order to prevent that from happening. Yeah, he's a strange character, Ken, but I don't know what I'd done to upset him, but he decided he didn't like me before he met me, which made for a, a very interesting interview. But I consoled myself by thinking that he probably did that to a lot of people. Um, it's worth reminding people, Charles, especially younger listeners, what um, I'm trying to think of a nice way of putting it, but Stanford Bridge back in those days was not the sleek modern stadium that it is today, was it, by any means? I wouldn't call it a sleek modern stadium today either, to be absolutely honest with you. Oh, okay. But in those days, it was it was a bowl. It had, yeah. it had, it had remained fairly untouched since its original uh, building in the early 1900s. Um, it was originally an athletic stadium, which was then turned into a football stadium when the Mears family uh, couldn't persuade Fulham Football Club to move into Stamford Bridge. Um, and so they formed their own club, which was Chelsea Football Club, in 1905. Um, the stands that were there uh, were replaced piecemeal. The original East Stand um, was replaced by this um, stand that we see there today. And the only reason that happened was because it was falling down and the council had given Chelsea a year and then they said they would condemn it and nobody would be able to sit there. Likewise, the old North Stand, which was next to it, used to shake when the, when the trains went past and yeah. that too was condemned. So it was, it was a fairly ramshackle place. And um, we all know the history of, of, of what went on there in the 80s and the rather unfortunate reputation that Chelsea fans had and, and the sort of things that were going on around that sort of time. Yeah, it's an interesting building historically anyway because the stadium was built on spec, on spec, wasn't it? It wasn't actually built for Chelsea. It no, it was, wasn't. It, it was built to try and persuade any club to move in and Fulham were the first offered, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you have to, you know, I, I, would, I would maintain it is a historic football ground. I mean, it held, um, it held FA Cup finals in the days before Wembley Stadium was built. Uh, post the Second World War, it, it hosted, um, we hosted one of the big games uh, when Moscow Dynamo came over and played and, and, and reputation has it that over 100,000 people were there. Wow. Um, in the days when, when, when Russians were actually quite welcome there um, en masse. <laughs> Um, um, but uh, when, you, when you look at how it's then developed, and it developed in the uh, 1990s in particular, um, it then got to a state whereby it was able to hold top top uh, class football and was uh, you know made some sense again. And where does Glenn Hoddle feature in all this? Because I believe he, he unwittingly played a crucial role, did he not? Right. Um, this is this is the part where history. Um, hasn't actually, you know, as somebody else once said, um, recollections may vary. <laughs> um, and and um, at that time, Chelsea, as we have been on many an occasion, were short of money. Yeah. And a gentleman called Matthew Harding uh, came along and was offering funds to Chelsea. And uh, that's when he built what is now the Matthew Harding end at um, the north end of the ground. And Glenn said that he wanted to make sure that the playing pitch was as big as possible because uh, he had come in as manager, we had changed our style, um, and we were playing some very attractive football and getting some success for the first time since the 1970s. So he wanted to make sure the pitch was as wide as possible. That That's, as as, as far as I know, it, his influence. 
Right, but it, did did that change the footprint of the stadium? Was was it made the it made the North Stand look a bit strange? We right. couldn't create um, as big a stand as perhaps we would have done otherwise. And uh, Ken's decision to uh, build the hotel at the shed end made that there was meant that there was restrictions there as well. I, I want to come back to this loan aspect, yep. the original loan, and I want to bring Kieran in afterwards as well. So the, the club lent you the money to buy the freehold. Yes. It strikes me, and as we know, Charles, I'm not financial, but they were giving you a very valuable asset to control, weren't they? I mean, at the time, was that a controversial decision? I don't think so. I think that um, it was seen for what it was, that Ken Bates said, look, I want to make sure that we never get into a situation whereby property developers can come in look at Chelsea Football Club and decide that actually the only thing of value here is the ground and that the club can go and, you know, go and whistle. Um, and I'm sure that there are other clubs you could think of whose grounds have been sold to all sorts of different people, and, and Kieran can comment on that one, um, who would wish that they had the same arrangement. Um, okay, yes, it was 11 million quid. There was no money that ever changed hands in that respect. Um, as part of our agreement, by the way, whenever we sell a share, um, we have to give the club 80% of that share value. And that's actually how the how the CPO keeps going because the cash flow from that remaining 20% contributes to actually how we can operate from day to day. Right. Well, you've semi-answered my next question because the loan is repayable, as you've explained. Yeah. But it, it strikes me that just selling shares isn't enough to raise the money to repay it. So are there other... Uh, fundraising activities going on? Right. I, I'm, I'm not sure you're right as far as that's concerned. Right. Um, oh, okay. Have, um, there, there is no limit. There is, I beg your pardon, there is a limit on the amount of shares that we can actually sell. And the uh, organisation, the CPO, are limited year to year as to how many they can sell via a uh, resolution at their annual general meeting. However, um, if you then look at the next 199 years, you can see a situation where um, the remaining 8,215,000 um, will actually become more and more of a of, of petty change and it will be repayable quite easily. Right. Kieran, I'd, I'd like to bring you in here, Kieran, if that's right, because first of all, it's interesting to hear that what we thought was a modern development where the ground and the club are owned by different people is actually something that was happening in history. And then just in terms of repaying that loan, Kieran, would it would it make sense for Chelsea pitch owners to get a loan from elsewhere to repay this loan outright? Because they would then be sitting on an actual gold mine, wouldn't they? And I'll, I'll bring Charles in to answer that question as well after I've heard from Kieran. Well, I've always said that there's nothing inherently wrong with with borrowing money. It's, it's funding the loan repayments as and when they fall due that's, uh, the issue, and that's all to do with cash flow. So, if there's no pressure on Chelsea pitch owners PLC to repay the loan, then I would not encourage them to to seek third parties because um, if they've got a good relationship with the current lender, then then there's no no point in in trying to to hurry. Uh, so, I, I'd, I'd sit reasonably tight at present, to be perfectly honest. Right, and, Ch- and Charles, is that the official policy of Chelsea pitch owners? It always has been, and I right. think it, it will be. The only time that you can see a situation is if the club become hostile, 
there have been a few occasions when that looked as though that was possible. Return, right. And um, there weren't people around who were going, we may need to look at external funders, and we don't think there's going to be a problem with that. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm fully signed up to what Kieran says. Can I just add, by the way, that um, although the share price is, is £100, we actually sell them for more than that. Um, uh, okay. The extra bit would be, for instance, if you wanted a share signed by a particular player or whether you wanted it framed or whether you wanted it presented on the pitch. And that bit of it is goes, and, and, and this is Kieran's um, uh, ballpark, um, that bit of it goes to the profit and loss account, whereas the £100 obviously comes into the capital account. Ah, Kieran, is that standard practice, I presume, Kieran, is it? I, I guess so, in the sense that you're buying more than the share. You know, the very fact that you're buying a share which is being physically signed by Joe Cole or Glenn Hoddle or Tony Cascarino, whoever it's going to be, <laughs> um, or you're getting it on the pitch, you're, you're paying for another service. So, so uh, you know, if, if, if I buy a share in Vodafone, they, I just buy it for whatever the, the going price is. Okay, uh, Charles, you, you talked about, you used the word aggressive there. Um, I want to ask you about two owners, basically. And first of all, historically, I'm fascinated by this forward-thinking decision from Ken Bates because his reputation is certainly more as a reactionary rather than somebody who would do something like this. So I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about him. And, and then secondly, there will be, I imagine 90% of our listeners will be wondering how you survived the takeover by Roman Abramovich because you would assume that you would be a slightly irritating nuisance to him and that he would have the money to blow you out of the water. So if you could tell us a little bit about Ken Bates first and then tell us about what happened when Roman Abramovich did take over. Right, let's let's deal with Ken first. Um, Ken gets a bad rap and I yeah. know why he does that. Um, he is a, a successful but on occasions quite abrasive abrasive guy who says what he says what he thinks and sometimes that comes out very um starkly um but in my dealing I, I actually had some dealings with him in the latter years when i was chair because i needed some advice and we met up and he was absolutely charming and he did a dinner for us and and he was wonderful um i think you could find a lot of chelsea fans who had a great deal of time for ken um and can i just actually say one of them would be a guy called paul ride who was imprisoned um quite scandalously by the Iraqi regime um, after Gulf War One, And Ken did a lot, actually, to try and uh, get people to write to him, get hold of the Foreign Office, and and try and get him out, which eventually he was. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that Ken does, and it doesn't necessarily get the publicity that it it deserves. Um, As far as Roman is concerned, um, I I always wonder whether or not when... Um, the takeover happened, and, and it happened in double quick time. Um, that you know, he arrived at Stamford Bridge the day when the the, the, the deal was sealed, and uh, was sort of standing there going, "Look at this! My, this is my empire. It's mine, all mine." And somebody then tapped him on the shoulder. <laughs> oh, you see that sort of green square bit in the middle? Not strictly yours, but you know, don't worry about it. And uh, that he took over in two thousand and three, and it took probably. Uh, a number of years, I think they went through a lot of legal opinion about whether they could break CPO, whether or not the, the lease was sound. And having proved that it was, they figured they wanted actually then just to launch a takeover bid. And that's where the controversy um, really kicked in. Now, um, 
very cleverly, or however, uh, Roman was kind of insulated from that because he never took a front row seat in doing this. That was very much down to the executives. And so um, when in 2011, the club announced that they wanted to move to a new ground, that they were looking at Battersea, they were looking at Earl's Court, they were looking at these wonderful designs, they showed us um, how a sort of yellow wall, um, Dortmund-style uh, stadium might look if it was housed in uh, in Battersea Power Station. Um, but as a part of that, that meant that CPO had to agree that their time was up. Right. And uh, they launched this takeover, and that became incredibly bitter and actually led to resignations all around uh, as far as CPO is concerned. And that was when I, after that, I got involved. Um, but there was there was a lot of things that were going on then that um, I'm very happy to talk about if you want me to. I'd love you to talk about them. So that bitterness implies then that there were many people in CPO who wanted to accept the offer. Would it have been a, a lucrative one for those people if they if had accepted it? Right. The, the club um, offered to pay um, Parry Passu for the, uh, for the for the share, so uh, £100 for a £100 share. Um, as part of their incentive, uh, they said that CPO members could have a priority when it came to season tickets at the new stadium. And also that we would have um, those people who voted in favour would be able to have their name inscribed on a walkway leading up to the new stadium. Right. Which... Um, some of us thought it was a little on the insulting side. Some people had done the calculations as to how much they thought that the ground was worth and said that actually that was that was complete nonsense as well. Um, but primarily it was, it was surrounding whether or not we actually wanted to leave Stamford Bridge. And there was a quite a, a, a section of the CPO members. And you must bear in mind that there's no doubt about it that, that CPO has a much older membership um, than perhaps... Um, you know, it's long-standing fans. It's people like me who've been around since the day dot. Mm. So um, they were actually wedded to the idea of, of, of staying at Stamford Bridge. But it was the actual general meeting itself that developed into what I can only describe as a complete and utter shambles oh. um, uh, that, that, that really kicked this all off. For reasons best known to the then directors of Chelsea Pitch Owners, and um, that was not including myself at the time, they decided that the meeting was going to be addressed by the Chelsea chairman, Bruce Buck, and the chief executive, Ron Gourlay, who has featured on this pod um, uh, his work at WBA more recently. Yeah. Um, I can only say that the two gentlemen concerned, and I have a great deal of time for Bruce, by the way. Um, I had dealings with him extensively and, and got on very well with him, but he badly mishandled this meeting. It was dreadful. Um, there was it was it was a shouting match. There was swearing. There was um, it, it was barely uh, able to keep in in, in any control whatsoever. Um, Fueled, I have to say, by calling the fans customers, uh, which of course is about as much yeah. of a red flag if you want to raise one as you can actually get to um, to us. The other thing that was um, uh, alluded to on the day was the fact that. Um, between the bid being published and the time of the general meeting, that 2,000 additional shares had been bought oh. by people um, uh, uh, in, in Chelsea pitch owners. Now, um, we have to be a little careful here because we don't want uh, your good friend Nick DeMarco to be involved in any <laughs> way whatsoever here. Um, we can't so afford him, that's why. That's right. 
Absolutely. I'm sure not many of us can. Um, uh, the, 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 the board at the time had permission to, uh, to issue 1,000 shares that year. And as I say, 2,000 were bought in a matter of three weeks. And there was um, a list of some of those shareholders produced by uh, some of the activists at the meeting, and they were insinuating that there were connections. Right. And let's just leave it at that. Um, and uh, uh, there was allegations of concert parties, which is a legal term under the, under the, under the Companies Act. And it all became rather suspicious. Now, as a result of that, the vote went 60% to sell. And uh, these are rough figures, not absolute, and about 40% not. Now, in order to sell, in order to give permission, they had to have 75%. So, so they actually failed in getting the requisite amount of votes. And did they leave it at that? Were they, did they walk away saying that's done or did they make other attempts to come back again? Well, um, no, they did actually. The club pretty much left it at that. Right. What it left was CPO in a, in a situation of complete and utter turmoil. Um, the next general meeting we had developed again into a shouting match and I was there as a shareholder and thinking this is, this is ridiculous. Um, somebody here has got to put their name forward and try and sort this out. And, and there was uh, three additional uh, directors who were uh, elected and appointed. I was one of them. There was a, a QC um, and a very senior solicitor um, uh, in, involved there as well. So um, we then got onto the board and um, the, the issue didn't go away. Um, we ended up in 2013 issuing what was called a, what, what is what is known as a Section 793 notice to all of these particular shareholders who bought these shares. And uh, it required them to write to us formally uh, to state whether or not they had an interest, uh, whether anybody else had an interest in their shares or whether they had an interest in anybody else's shares. We'd, we'd actually said to the, to the shareholders, this will actually achieve nothing. And guess what? It achieved absolutely nothing because everybody wrote back to us and said, no, nope, shares are my own. And no, I've got, I've got no other shares, uh, no other interest in anybody else's shares. And so the matter pretty much subsided because then um, the uh, redevelopment of Stamford Bridge started to gain some momentum and the idea of having a new stadium was uh, was was on the agenda and people moved on hi i'm steve lamack and every week i'm joined by music allies head of insight stuart dredge on the price of music the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. It's interesting you talk about the antipathy to the word customers because Simon Jordan made exactly the same mistake when he took over at, at Palace and his first um, release about season ticket holders referred to as customers and he was on the back foot ever after. Uh, you, you'd have made Kieran very happy by using 
phrases like section 793 he'll be that's why he's gone quiet he'll be wiping away a little tear of joy it's <laughs> such a technical statement you used a couple of phrases there charles if you don't mind um as you know it's it's not my, it's not my field of expertise was it parpasu was that one of the phrases so so in other words they were offering 100 pounds for a 100 pound share right now that strikes me as not being considering the wealth of Roman Abramovich, you would imagine that he'd have been, or whoever it was who fronted the the takeover, that if they'd offered four hundred pounds for each hundred pound share, they'd have they'd have a much better chance of, of succeeding rather than offering you the hundred pound plus that, as you say, that insulting chance to have your name on on the yellow brick road, which yeah. is very odd. Um, no, I, 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 for what it's worth, that's always been my opinion. My opinion always was if he'd offered. I don't, I don't know what the figure would have been, 100, 150, 200 pounds? Yeah. No. And people might have gone, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it was one of those questions that then actually cropped up at another general meeting. And um, people would say, I want to know from each director um, whether or not you would have accepted the offer if it was made again today. And I just gave a one-word answer, and that answer was no. Yeah. Um, well, I, I suppose – sorry to interrupt, Charles. I, I suppose as well that – um, the demographic of Chelsea pitch owners, as you hinted at, are, are probably wealthy enough to be able to turn down a, a, a 200 £300 bid for one share, aren't they, anyway? Um, I think you've categorised Chelsea fans in the way in which a, a number of football fans think, oh, yeah, we're all we're all absolutely rich. I can tell you, I, I sit next I sit next door to a postman. I sit, I sit behind somebody who works um, in the housing department of Hammersmith and Fulham, uh, 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 Hammersmith and Fulham Council. Um, I sit next to a bus driver. You know, I mean, these 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 people are the ones who actually not, aren't necessarily, um, uh, you know, wealthy. I'm 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 in a very privileged position. I don't deny that. But um, not everybody who goes to Chelsea is 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 wealthy. Not everybody is is up against it. And you know, I'm, I'm you had that discussion with Kieran the other week about about fans in other cities as well, like Liverpool. There's, there's people with money. There's people who don't have so much money. Yeah, to be to be fair, Charles, it's not you that will get the angry tweets if I don't insinuate that all Chelsea fans are Tory MPs. Basically, <laughs> <clears throat> I'm all about the cliche, Charles. Don't worry. And also, concert parties—that's a new one to me as well. That's a legal. That's a legal description of 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 people who would get together and 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 do something uh, in order to achieve an end, um, uh, as far as the Companies Act is concerned. Right. Um, many experts, uh, Charles, and I, I try to say that word experts in inverted commas, um, agree that moving to a bigger stadium would benefit the club. So are, are there fans then who think that Chelsea pitch owners actually are standing in the way of progress for the, for the club? No doubt about it. I mean, I entered into a, into a, into a chat um, with a well-known newspaper the other week following stories about what's going to happen um, with the stadium, what options they've got. And um, one of the contributors basically said they thought the CPO was some sort of sect, um, <laughs> you know, and they should move out the way. And I had to gently point out to them, they won't just move out the way. They're the owners of the stadium. That's what they're there for. Um, I think the other the other thing that I haven't actually said is that the value of the shares. Right. I mean, I've got, I've got a number of CPO shares, and you know how much they're worth? Absolutely nothing. Right. Oh, okay. There's no resale market. It's not like the stock exchange. We hold these shares because this is what we believe in. We want to hold a part of our club. That's what it's about. So it's you know I've got a certificate that's on my wall. I've got a um, I've got 
you know, knowledge of, 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 of that. And that's great. I'm happy with that. And so are most other people. Oh, so you couldn't offer your share to another Chelsea pitch owner then, for example? I could do. Yeah, I can transfer right. it. I can uh, transfer right. it. But um, I've, I've yet to find anybody who's, who's actually transferred it for, for serious money. Right. Um, on the subject of owners, Charles, what's your relationship with Todd Burley like? Is, was it too early right. in the day? I mean, in, in theory, could you stop him walking across your pitch to make those ill-advised team talks? <laughs> have, you, have you thought of that? Uh, right. So I um, I decided that my time uh, was up in, in, in late 2019. So at that point, I, I said, right. If I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave entirely because I don't want the next chair to have uh, somebody else hanging around who, who said, "Oh well, I, that that wouldn't have been the way I did it." So yeah, I sure. got out. Um, my understanding is that when the takeover was happening, that they were fully consulted about everything. And um, what, from what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, they are actually involved in the discussions about what's going on now. So uh, they would have to answer for that, and I would expect the relations to be to be sound and um, bearing in mind that people, they, they have actually put onto the board two uh, well-known supporters, one of whom is Danny Finkelstein, right. and uh, he's got good connections all around. So I would expect him to be to be moving in and about and talking to CPO like he does with the Supporters Trust as well. And um, you shouldn't forget the Supporters Trust in this. They were formed as a result of the campaign to prevent CPO from being sold. You would imagine, I mean, Todd Burley is clearly a very clever businessman. You would imagine that Chelsea pitch owners would be part of the due diligence in a way that you imply that it perhaps wasn't for the Roman Abramovich takeover. There was no doubt um, that when the due diligence, and that took, uh, I think it took, although it was done in double quick time, um, people didn't necessarily understand that, but it was done in double quick time, particularly with the scope and the uh, extent of the of, of the company. Um, but CPO were well in that in those discussions, and they were they were um, talking to the Rain Group, as I understand it, right. and they were also talking to each and every one of the people who were bidding for the uh, club at that stage. So they knew all about CPO. There was no that 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 situation would not have been replicated again. Right. Do you know what, Charles? I am beginning to regret my comments about Chelsea fans. I'm going to get an, an angry email from David Baddiel. Quite <laughs> uh, right, too. Yeah, a, a long angry email from David Baddiel. Um, yeah, well, if, 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 if I see David when I'm uh, when I'm visiting the facilities in the East Stand, he's <laughs> somewhere somewhere around where I sit. So uh, um, I shall mention that he, he needs to send that email and shot. <laughs> and talking to Chelsea fans, Charles, my last question is: you you are. As we've established, you're completely independent of the club. But is it um, a criteria for Chelsea pitch owners that you have to be Chelsea fans? No, it isn't. No, you could you could buy a share. Kieran could buy a share. Um, and and uh, I for a long time when I was a director, I actually did the admin for the for for, for Chelsea pitch owners. I was issuing, literally sending the shares out. And um, as company secretary, I had the. Um, onerous task of, of, of maintaining the shareholder register. So I know some of the people who are on there and there are many names who you would associate with other clubs on there and, and that was fine because in the early days, shares were sold at dinners and, and lunches and that the sort of thing um, with uh, which were attended by football folk in general. Yeah, see, I, I wouldn't put it past Kieran to buy a share. I I I wouldn't buy one for many reasons. Partly because I came home uh, from Palace last week with another scarf. 
And Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Day, Mrs. Day didn't take kindly to that. So the idea of me suggesting to her that I've bought a share in Chelsea would make the eyebrows raise even further. But said, Charles, it's been really interesting to talk to you. As I say, I'm sure our listeners will be as fascinated as I was by the fact that what I thought was a simple, I wouldn't say sect, Kieran, but I, I, I had it down as a, a kind of gentleman's club, to be perfectly honest, and I'm, I'm slightly ashamed of that now. But it's, it's a fascinating history, and it's fascinating that still at this stage, fans are able to influence in some way the, the, the ownership of one of the biggest clubs in English football. Can I just actually throw one further fact at you? Of course you um, can. And, and, and it, involves, it involves another bearded gentleman, um, and one who we would all know but has never been mentioned on this pod before. Father and Christmas? Uh, Is it Father and, Christmas? And, no, it's not. Patience with me. Um, and, and he will have an influence over the stadium if it gets rebuilt at Stamford Bridge. And that person is King Henry VIII. Wow, now you're talking my language as a history student. What's King Henry VIII? Um, and that is to do with the height of the stadium, and it is to do with the sight lines that King Henry VIII was uh, maintaining um, with the view of St. Paul's Cathedral. And one of those sight lines is from Richmond Park and from something called King Henry's Mound. And from King Henry's Mound, you will have to keep a clear line of sight to St. Paul's Cathedral up on Ludgate Hill. and. That is the reason that Stamford Bridge, when it gets rebuilt, will have to be sunk into the ground and will cost that much more money. Charles, well, is, uh, I love history. I'm passionate about history. But I'm also notoriously gullible. I, I, I will fall for any fact that's put to me in a, a, a nice voice as confidently as that. Is that true? You, 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 can, you can just go on to The Athletic. Wow. They have written a, a Don Finefield has gone a, a, gone the full um, twenty five pages on this. Um, it's been mentioned by Henry Winter in the Times. So if if they are pulling uh, your leg as well, then good luck to them. But seriously, that's that's um, that's the unknown fact that I'm just going to throw into this pod just for just a little bit of entertainment. That's that's fantastic, uh, Don Finefield. I, it's a good Palace fan. I love Dom. He's a brilliant writer. If, if Dom Finefield says it's true, Charles. Also, the other historical fact about Chelsea, and I'm rather glad it didn't happen because I suspect it would have made me support them when I was a kid, is that originally they wanted to call the club London FC, but the FA at the time wouldn't allow them. That's something I didn't know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They wanted to call the club London FC, and the FA said not one club can can claim to be uh, the custodians of the name of London. So uh, there, you, there you go. This It's taken a turn for the better, this pod. I, I'm going to encourage our listeners. Any more obscure historical facts, I'm all for it. Charles, as I say, it's been really interesting to find out the, the true history and the true present of, of Chelsea pitch owners. And long may you continue to be part of a game that's um, consistently being taken over by billionaires. Well done. Thank you for talking to us. No problem. My pleasure. Kieran, that was a really interesting insight. And as, as I mentioned in a, in a half-assed sort of way, because I couldn't quite get the words right, it, it, it fascinates me that it, in the middle of one of the most expensive areas of real estate in London, in the middle of one of the most expensive football clubs in London, there are still a group of people who are mostly fans of the club, who have as much control over the future of the club as the billionaires that own it. You're absolutely right. And I like the fact that 
those people see themselves as guardians. Yeah. And, and, and that is great. You know, we've, we've often said that regardless of the wealth of an individual owner or group of owners, they are custodians of the club because a football club is a living, breathing organism in its own right as far as the fans are concerned. And if you, if you, if you talk to people who are the biggest uh, stakeholders in football, it, it is the fans and the players, and, and too often their, their views and, and their reservations are not taken into consideration. Um, and what Chelsea pitch owners are doing here is just saying, doesn't matter how rich you are, we are still Chelsea Football Club. Yeah, and I'm I'm still fascinated by that notion, Kieran, that Roman Abramovich, who still is, but certainly was at the time, one of the wealthiest people in the world, didn't when he tried to take over uh, Chelsea pitch owners, didn't just blow them out of the water with a massive offer for their shares. Rather, he just matched the price that they paid. That, that seems again counterintuitive to what you what we know about billionaires. Yeah, I think it was a it, it was a wrong step unless he had taken counsel from Bruce Buck and his other advisors who said there will be a significant rump of Chelsea pitch owner shareholders who, regardless of what you offer them, will turn around and say, No, we, right. we didn't we didn't get into this for the money, so therefore we're not getting out of it just because you're offering us a lot more money. Um, but you know, as uh, as Charles was saying, uh, there was uh, yeah, there was a significant number of Chelsea fans or Chelsea, Chelsea pitch owner shareholders who who were willing to uh, consider Roman Abramovich's offer at a hundred pounds a share. So um, yeah, perhaps they could have been persuaded if if the the money involved had been higher. Yes, and, and Charles was such a nice chap, uh, and I'm always a sucker for a well spoken chap as well. Uh, I, I really wished I'd intervened when he was talking about how nice Ken Bates could be at the time because uh, <laughs> he certainly wasn't when I met him. And I, I don't think he was particularly nice when he was talking about putting up electric fences around the pitch and calling fans parasites. Um, but other than that, I thought that was a fantastic interview with, with Charles Rose. Um, and it really was illuminating. Uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Buy some football.